Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bunhofer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of this brave, brilliant uh, World War II era church leader in Germany, one of the first voices to speak out against Adolf Hitler and uh, the evil that was Nazism. He would pay the price uh, for his prophetic witness when he was hanged at the Flossenburg concentration camp in April of 1945, 39 years old, engaged to be married. But before Dietrich Bonhoeffer left this earth, he bequeathed to all of us uh, a wonderful library. And uh, here at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, the sponsor of this podcast, we use that rich legacy uh, to help shape and form ethically courageous leaders uh, for uh, our own time to meet the exigencies, the challenges that uh, lie in front of us uh, now and into the future. So here on this podcast, we like to introduce you to uh, leaders who are doing just that kind of work. And today I'm talking to one. Sam Heath is a manager at the Evangelical Network for Equal Justice USA, uh, where he directs uh, that program, uh, leading EJUSA's engagement with evangelical people and spaces. His faith background enables him to tell stories about the realities of justice and injustice in America and hold together a view of the world as a place both exceptional and exploitative. Before coming on board with EJUSA in 2021, Sam taught high school history for 10 years in North Carolina and Virginia, no doubt both a wonderful and harrowing experience. <laughs> he has a BA in education and psychology from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a master's in theology, ethics, and culture from the University of Virginia. Sam, welcome to Shank Talks Bunhofer. Thanks for joining me today in conversation. Absolutely. Really excited to sit and chat. Now, I'm going to make a confession right out of the gate here, Sam. I'm Please? just slightly professionally envious of you because <laughs> I happen to know that when you were at the University of Virginia, you sat under Charles Marsh, author of Strange Glory, A Life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and you got to know him and his wife. Uh, and I have not had that pleasure, so I'm, I'm going to kind of feed off that emanation. <laughs> we, we've long promoted Strange Glory as really the best of the English biographies other than Baitka's own gold standard. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I'd like you to talk about that. Uh, but first, let's get to know you a little bit. I'd like to Great. introduce my guests to our podcast family on the personal level. Do you mind sharing a little bit about how it is you come to be who you are today? Absolutely. Sure. So my family is a family of five. So my wife, Rachel, and I both work from home in remote roles. And we have three kids, seven, 
five and three. We just had birthdays, Alan, Atticus, and Wendell. And we grew up, we met when we were four, and we grew up together. So we've been friends for a long time. So we grew up in North Carolina, both grew up in the Southern Baptist world for our first 20 years. And my wife studied at NC State. I studied, as you said, at Chapel Hill and wanted to be a teacher and was for 10 years. And in the middle of that time, thought about what it would look like to move into higher education. As I continued to love students, I also loved content. And so going to UVA was a way of thinking about a PhD path as a possibility. And so I studied theology, ethics, and culture there. Specifically, I looked at art and theology and how those intersected and loved it and did get to sit under Charles Marsh. I took his civil rights movement as theological drama course and got to engage him and his work and specifically remember meeting with him and talking about a project that I did on art within the civil rights movement that was functioning in a prophetic way and he was a huge encouragement in that. And so he and I both live in Charlottesville and so we overlap at different things and get to see each other around town. Strange Glory is yes, wonderful and amazing. And so I taught after I finished the master's degree, I went back to teaching high school because I realized how much I liked the classroom and engaging mm. students. And a life of writing and research had some pros, but a lot of cons, because I really wanted to dive into transferring content to students and engaging students in their minds and bodies within a classroom. So I went back to high school teaching and used the knowledge that UVA graced me with there and taught there for six more years. We stayed here in Charlottesville as a family and slowly, and I can say as much of this as you as you want, but got moved into thinking about a direct activism and organizing role within criminal legal reform. And that's the world where I'm in now. And so we church-wise, we moved from the Southern Baptist world to being in the Presbyterian world for about 15 years. And as recent as this Thanksgiving became Anglicans, and we're helping plant an Anglican church here in Charlottesville. Well, it's a nice broad swath of... Uh... <laughs> of the Christian family. You're, uh, it I'm going to ring a bell here because, you know, of course, our dear namesake was uh, quite an ecumenist himself. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, he, he easily moved uh, between uh, church bodies. And even though as a Lutheran, uh, sometimes you, you could mistake him for a Presbyterian or at least a Calvinist <laughs> of some kind, a Reformed uh, church, so uh, so you get a a, a, a ding. I'm, uh, someday I'm going to get an actual bell and ring it when when our <laughs> guests cross over into the into the world of uh, of Bonhoeffer. But I do want you to say more because uh, your formation uh, in so many ways crosses over uh, in um, in many areas to the concerns of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. First, mm-hmm. let me uh, let me ask you about that that journey from the Southern Baptist to Anglican uh, worlds. I, I imagine you still keep company with Southern Baptists, uh, at least professionally yeah. and otherwise. Absolutely. What was that like for you? Those are those are in some ways similar uh, Christian cultures and and. Um, you know, similar ethos, and in other ways, distinctly different. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. has that been for you to make that journey? It, exciting and, and jarring in 
in equal measures, I think. I mean, hmm. we, we grew up in the Southern Baptist world, and so I learned who Jesus was and what the Bible is and learned to love what church was. I was taught so much in the Southern Baptist world. But I also, through the church that I was at, learned what legalism was and learned what engaging the faith in some unhealthy ways looked like. And so as in any tradition or in any church, there was a, a mix of both the, the wicked and the wonderful. And so I credit both of those things. And as I moved into thinking about the world in a more reformed way, this was in the early 20s, I moved into the PCA world. We planted a PCA church, a group of mm. us did. And then here in Charlottesville, I attended a PCA church and was an elder there for six years. And what I was looking for within the PCA world was set ideas and a knowable history and a hierarchy and something that extended beyond a congregational model. I, I felt the limits of that in the Southern Baptist world and really had an interest in how could a hierarchy help shape a people. And as I was in the PCA world, I experienced that and loved that and eldered within that. And the longer that I was there, the more I saw that what I felt our family needed was a denominational home that could house us and help us be rooted, particularly in scripture, as we lived in a tumultuous, chaotic world. And so I moved from teaching into the activism organizing world. And so my job is very much an envelope pushing job on the fringes of really lots of things, the fringes of secularism, the fringes of Christianity. And it it's also is calling in ways for some of those to overlap. So I often feel at the margins of lots of groups I'm in professionally. And so Anglicanism offered this broad and beautiful and global and storied and orthodox and liturgical tradition that gave us a rootedness as a family that we desperately wanted as so much in Christendom was being sorted, as so much is a question mark within the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, where I was. And so Anglicanism has been a welcome home for us to especially come under the Book of Common Prayer and have that as a consistent piece of our formation as so many other things are, are up and down. You know, I think you know I'm a Methodist evangelical with Pentecostal roots. Mm -hmm. and made a similar journey for a similar reason. And one of the things that I appreciate about liturgical churches is that, you know, you can fit in or find a place, at least in the worship style and texture of a congregation, more easily as you move from place to place, particularly if, if you travel for a living, as I did for 35 mm. years, and you want to find a church home. When it's a local congregation, it can be so idiosyncratic <laughs> that you can't help but feel like an alien, like mm -hmm. an outsider. I mean, a lot of churches do a very good job compensating for that just through their warmth and, and welcome and so on. But, but there is something uh, to that uniformity, at least in part, a uniformity from from church to church. But I digress mm -hmm. here because we definitely want to get on um, <laughs> what you are doing in that job uh, that you just described, uh, which I think is both a fascinating and very, very fruitful one. Before you tell us about the evangelical network in particular, can you talk a little bit about Equal Justice USA? What is its mission? Uh, what are its programs? How, and I'm, I'm assuming that it, it serves as a kind of umbrella 
to a, a number of networks, the evangelical network being one of them, but correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Sure. So Equal Justice USA is a national group that does criminal legal work as well as racial equity work. And so we've been an organization since 1990. We're spread out across the U.S. And for most of our history, we've done exclusively anti-death penalty work. And within the last few years, we started thinking, well, if the death penalty was repealed at the federal level and at the state level, which is still a huge piece of what we do and work for, but if that happened, we still are left with a criminal legal system that is not doing what it promises, that is not able to form, and is certainly not able to heal individuals. And so if the death penalty ended, we still have a lot that we wanted to address. And so EJUSA started thinking about how can we address those things? And we got to what we would say the core issue is within the United States, this idea, this belief that justice equals punishment. And so we would say justice does not equal punishment, but that it equals safety, healing, and accountability that repairs. So we envision a world where violence is rare, where every community is safe and healthy. And some of those are things that our current criminal legal system promises. We would say the system as it exists now is not only not able to do that, but brings the opposite of those things. And so when we started to have this trauma-informed vision as an organization, it meant that we had to look beyond the death penalty and into other places where we could help shape a system, not just to reform it, but to completely transform it. So right now the system asks the question, what crime was broken and or what law was broken, what crime occurred, and who do we need to punish? Because the belief seems to be that change comes through punishment, protection comes through punishment. And if that were true, we'd be the safest nation in the history of the world, and we certainly aren't. We're asking a different question. That question is, who was harmed and what is it that needs to occur for healing? And the answer of who is harmed in an instance of violence or a crime is, is everyone. The person who did the harm, the person who received the harm, and the surrounding community. When a crime occurs, an act of violence, it's always a communal act that's done. So therefore, it takes a community to repair that thing. So EJUSA took that idea and started applying it to all parts of the system. So we would talk about now the death penalty, which we pursue to repeal. We'd also talk about racial equity as something that we engage. And it's less an issue for us and more the lens that we see all of these things through and then, then an end goal. We talk about trauma-informed policing. That's one aspect of reform on the way to a completely transformed system that we would talk about. We also look at violence reduction as a whole. How could there be more community-based violence intervention? And community healing would be the fifth thing as we think about restorative justice programs are those things that we can come under. So this national group, we exist to come under and beside existing groups and organizations to help and aid or fund, advise, to champion, really to accompany them in the work that they're already doing. A few years ago, about seven or so years ago, EJUSA thought about how could we do this with certain groups to bridge divides. You talked about the idea of uniformity, and that's really the goal, not unity, or that the goal is unity rather than uniformity. And so who is it we can unite with to build this coalition? And so a branch of EJUSA formed called Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. And that's still a branch of the work that we do, reaching to political conservatives who want to talk about and reconsider the death penalty. And through that work came the realization of, you know, we should also engage evangelicals. 
There's 100 million self-identified evangelicals in the United States. It's a huge group, and we can talk about what we mean by evangelical, but it, we know that it's a big group. We know it's a powerful group. And so the Evangelical Network was formed in 2017 to reach out to evangelical people in spaces and to say, here's what we mean by evangelical. Here's the work that we're doing. What work are you doing? And how can we partner in that to transform this criminal legal system to something that heals rather than something that harms? When I came on board with EJUSA, my role was to take the evangelical network from only its anti-death penalty work and to expand it to the full platform of those five things that I was talking about before. Wow. And when you mentioned the conservatives concerned about the death penalty, um, I'm associated with that effort mm -hmm. uh, and only because of an introduction by my very good and longtime friend, uh, and many people will know him uh, from uh, the American Center for Law and Justice, Jay Sekulow, mm -hmm. uh, national uh, advocate for many causes, uh, yes. controversial in some quarters, uh, <laughs> yeah. celebrated in other quarters. Uh, but he's the one who introduced me to conservatives concerned about the death penalty. And, you know, when I'm in conversation with conservatives, uh, religious, political, and social conservatives, and the death penalty comes up, uh, usually there's a fairly ferocious defense of the death penalty, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, as a deterrent against violent crime, which I think you could speak to uh, is categorically f false. <laughs> it is not. But right. in any case, um, the one thing that I bring up to my Christian conservative interlocutors is that really this whole equation that you uh, articulated so succinctly uh, of, you know, uh, what law is broken, has been broken, what crime has been committed, who must be punished, is antithetical to the whole message and ethos of the gospel we embrace as Christians. Mm -hmm. it, it's completely the opposite. In fact, I would argue it's precisely what Jesus decried in his uh, messianic ministry mm -hmm. on earth. So uh, it, it seems like at least for, certainly for evangelicals who put at the center of their faith and practice uh, the, 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 you know, the centrality of the gospel as we know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John 3.16, uh, if we confess our sins, he is just and righteous to forgive us our sins, that grace becomes the operative um, tool of, of God's salvific work. Mm-hmm. That all seems very consistent with uh, the mission and purpose uh, that you just articulated. And I've got to ask you, is EJUSA identified as a religious organization or, or not? Is it a secular organization? It's Did not. It, and that's it? what it's one beautifully unique piece of it. So we're a 501c3, but we're not a faith-based organization. And the majority of people who work at EJUSA are not believers. 
But yet hmm. what drew me to them was one, that they were willing to reach out to those that are people of faith, to bring them to the table. As long as someone comes around the idea that justice is not punishment, that it's safety, healing, and accountability that repairs, there's room at this table for that person. But I also was drawn to the vision of as EJUSA laid out their philosophy or theory of change, of what that looked like. I realized that I came to those exact same ideas and agreed with them, but my road to them was a theological one. And so I was able to genuinely say to them, you're looking for a manager of this network. I believe this message, but I believe it for explicitly Christian reasons. And so the really early work in my time at EJUSA was, well, let's write out a theology and get explicit of who we are and where we are and biblically where we're basing these things because we're not just articulating secular ideas. These are things that are already built into the Christian faith in, in very rooted ways. Mm. And truth is truth. Uh, wherever it wherever is found. Wherever it's found and right. has its origin, I would argue, in God who's uh, one of his, one of God's principal attributes is truth. Mm -hmm. Jesus, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So uh, where there's uh, truth, there is a connection to the divine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, you've done that in, in a very literal way. You've connected the the mission and work of Equal Justice USA to a body of people who I think would agree with all of that. Um, for the non-religious conservative argument, I often bring up in the context of my opposition to the death penalty that, you know, conservatives are often the first to carp against the, um, uh, about the uh, inadequacies or uh, incapacities of government bureaucracies. And mm -hmm. I often ask, if you think that governments have a hard time properly issuing a driver's license, how, how is it you're convinced that they do death so impeccably, mm -hmm. uh, execution uh, and judgment in that field so impeccably? And there usually isn't a very good response to that. So I, I don't do it to antagonize, but I do hope to provoke the question, uh, what really is at work here? And I think uh, Equal Justice has answered that very well. We seem to have a propensity for punishment. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I would argue that's antithetical uh, to the gospel, but that we don't even do that. Uh, very well. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it seems that it's a benefit to all if that work is more redemptive. So can you tell us how equal justice actually does that end of the work? Mm -hmm. How is it, you know, that you get to that reparative uh, part of it? Part of it is having conversations with people about what it is that they want. If we're talking about the death penalty or if we're talking about the criminal legal system, it's, it's good to begin with what is it that somebody wants? 
So if they want, a, as you were alluding to, a government program that's run well, well, it's it's not that by any measure. If we want something that fiscally makes sense, it's not that either. If we want something that deters crime, it doesn't do that either. If we want something that's consistently applied, humanely applied, that doesn't meet international standards of torture, no, none of those things apply to this. And those are just the, the secular and logical reasons. So I'm always interested in, in Try it, graciously hearing what is it that someone wants. And if it's any of those things, our system and certainly execution doesn't meet that need. Now, if it's something else that somebody wants, just punishment, our system does that. It's very successful. People talk about a broken criminal legal system, but it's not because the system is doing what it was designed to do, which was to punish. So then the question becomes a moral one. What is the use of punishment? Does punishment actually change behavior? Sure, to a degree, but are we as a society interested in just curbing behavior or, or are we wanting to form people? Are we wanting to practice some form of discipleship? And I don't mean that necessarily in a Christian way. I just mean formation of humans. And we know that control and confinement and death don't do that well and don't do that in a long-term way. So if we want to actually shift hearts, if we want to see people change and be productive rather than just labeled as monsters and removed, then we've got to look to something else. So, so a baseline is a conversation of what is it that someone wants? So if somebody wants punishment, the system offers that. But if somebody wants a measure of healing, if somebody wants a changed life, or at least the possibility of that happening, both the person who did the harm and the person who was harmed, then we can't look at the system right now to do that thing. And so part of the conversation is saying the system is ill-equipped as it stands now to meet that. And as I said earlier, not only does the system not do those things it says it does, it does the opposite. The system is the chief perpetrator of violence. So rather than just reforming, that there's a measure of that that we'll do now and with support on the way, what we want to do is completely flip it and say we want a transformed system. And a lot of that's through a typical restorative justice lens of where was the harm done? Who should come around that harm and what would healing look like within that? And if we ask those questions, then we start to get at some possibilities, some things that can be offered, again, that the system isn't able to do. So part of the work that we do is getting people to that moment of seeing the system as being limited, seeing the system as being incapable, and seeing another option, not just as being possible, but already being done. There are cities across the country, there are countries across the world doing things other than a retributive punishment-based system. And where those things are done, not only do they work, not only do they reduce recidivism, not only with something like restorative justice is there an 80 to 90% satisfaction rate of those involved versus a 30% within a typical court system. All of those things, we actually see healing begin to occur. So one, we want to talk about that and say, we're not asking for something that's not already occurring. It is occurring. And when it's done, it's beautiful and it's research-based and it's statistically able to do those things that it promises. So we want to make that argument, but then we also want to do it. We want to enable groups that are trauma-informed to do their work. One group that we have is called the Trauma and Healing Network, and it's a network of several dozen groups that are pre-existing outside of EJUSA, but that we've come along and beside to accompany them in their work, to buttress their work, to enable them to do that work well, or community-based violence groups so that communities don't have to only rely on police as a way to curb or control violence. Communities, when they want to do it, are incredibly capable of doing that on their own, or restorative justice, 
when communities want to consider what would a justice process look like that seeks to restore all parties involved. We want to come under those programs and enable them to occur. So part of what we do is a narrative battle as we engage different narratives in different ways to shift that and to break that reliance and obsession with punishment. And another is a very practical piece. We want to repeal the death penalty. We want trauma-informed groups to do their work. We want communities in charge of their safety. Now I'm gonna take you back for a second here mindful that you did some of your, uh, was it undergraduate work in psychology? Mm-hmm, I did. You know, you know, and I happen to be married to a psychotherapist. And okay. I, get a lot of, I get a lot of free therapy, <laughs> which that. helps me enormously. Uh, and by the way, a, 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 a trauma uh, specialist. Uh, my wife is trained in, in you know, uh, trauma. Uh, so... Those are familiar things to me, but here's what I want to get at. When I speak to Christians about these kinds of subjects, I often find, and I'm talking mostly about evangelicals now because that's my family, that's my faith family. You you spoke about um, retributive uh, uh, inclinations or, or... directions and and undoing that. And I do sense often that there's really a kind of craving for retribution. Mm -hmm. How dare this person do something so appalling, Mm -hmm. so horrible, Uh, murder a child, uh, kill a student in a classroom, uh, rape and murder a teenager. How dare they? We need not just to punish, but to vanquish this person from the human race. Mm. Do you do you run into that? Do you encounter that? And and mm-hmm. uh, you have any insights into how? It, it, it seems to me you, you use the word discipleship in a secular context, but mm-hmm. when I bring that back into the church, it seems that, that there's a failure in discipleship formation for Christians, mm-hmm. that this urge to vanquish, to inflict harm and injury on someone for something they've done is an eye for an eye and a tooth mm-hmm. for a tooth. And again is something contrary to the New Testament gospel. Mm-hmm. Do you it see comes it that up, way? I, it comes up a lot. So if, if we're talking about when harm is done, if somebody wants there to be some sort of payment, that is a natural, human, good, and biblical reaction. I think of the imprecatory Psalms and how you hear within it this cry for justice. And often it sounds very bloody what's being called for. So the idea of when harm is done, something being owed, that is a good, godly, and a biblical thing. The question is, what is owed and who is it that should demand it and bring that thing? So do we see God bringing what is owed in a retributive sense within Scripture? Often, yes, and we and we hear in the eschaton that being a feature of it that's there. 
mainly I were one I would say that is God and that is his role he's able to do that in this beautiful in this perfectly just way and for those of us here on earth as his stewards as his culture makers as his representatives what is it that we are able to do I I might slightly amend what I said earlier of decrying a retributive system because in a way part of what I want to do is rescue that word of retribution so I would distinguish retribution from punishment I would also distinguish retribution from revenge. I would put punishment and revenge in a very similar category or bucket. And those are things that are done for their own sake, often for an individual. And they're, they're, they end when that thing is done. The end goal is I want to do this thing for me to satisfy this urge where I only want to bring pain or punishment in this instance. And that's often a pretty passive thing. Not much has to happen for that to happen. It certainly requires no participation of the person who did the harm. But retribution is something else. Retribution is a theme and a thread throughout all of Scripture, from New Testament all the way back into the Old. Retribution is just talking about what is owed. When harm is done, when violence is done, when crime is done, when a sin is done, something is owed. And what I would want to call for is a measure of accountability. So when a crime happens, an act of violence, it is a communal thing. Salvation is most often spoken of in scripture as a corporate idea. Almost everything in scripture is corporate and communal. So when harm is done, one big shift in our thinking in the church is to see it as something that's done not to an individual, but to a community. And if that's the case, then something is owed, not just to an individual who was harmed, but to that community. And something like restorative justice, which can be practiced anywhere. This can be something that the system does. This can be something within a home, within a church, within a school. Restorative justice is a huge spectrum. It is not just one thing, but it asks this question of who can come to this table to heal harm. And I think Christians often mistake or overlap punishment and retribution. So when I talk about retribution, we're talking about what is owed. So there is a level of accountability that has to occur there. So if somebody does something to someone, biblically, that person owes something. There is accountability that should occur there. Our criminal legal system requires none of this from someone. In fact, it discourages it. People who go through the criminal legal system not only are told not to tell the truth, they're told, not, they're told to tell the opposite of that or else they will reap consequences on themselves. But another version of this, something outside the system, would enable someone to say, I did this thing, and they can pursue accountability. And by accountability, I'm talking about really three specific things. A person acknowledging something that happens, they acknowledge their role in it, they acknowledge the feelings and experience and the pain caused to another person. Repair would be the second thing, some kind of act that someone would need to do. Again, something is owed both to the individual who was harmed and to the community. And then the third thing is change, a change in behavior of a person and a change in structure maybe within a community so that that kind of harm can't happen again. Our system is not able to do really any of those three things. Christianity calls for that, and we see those things happening, those three things happening within Scripture. So I want Christians often to say, what is it that you want when harm is done? If it's punishment, that's easy, it's passive, and it's already happening. But if it's healing, then that's something that is possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that whole idea of punishment being easy and it does seem to be the easier path. In fact, 
it seems that it's a way for us to escape our responsibility Mm -hmm. for taking care of our brother or our sister, loving our neighbor, loving our enemy, uh, even praying for those who persecute us. These are difficult things. These are these are deep and difficult claims that Christ makes uh, mm-hmm. on his disciples. It seems the easier thing is just use the, the hammer or the guillotine mm-hmm. or the electric chair or the firing squad or uh, or the lethal injection. That's mm-hmm. just easier. We can be done and finished with it and walk away and say, that's not our problem anymore. But it seems to me that the call of discipleship, of following Christ, is, is a very sometimes demanding and arduous and mm-hmm. difficult one. It, it's picking up our cross. Mm-hmm. It's living contrary to what our uh, primitive impulses and instincts are, because after all, if, if as evangel—now you and I are talking as evangelicals, and I know there are others who are just listening into our conversation, but if, uh, if we believe that we are sinful human beings, uh, then our first impulses are often sinful ones. Hmm. And that resisting that mm-hmm. sinful temptation, that sinful urging, that sinful impulse uh, is part of the process of discipleship formation, of right. spiritual formation. Right. So does, does the evangelical network get into this in terms of, for example, providing resources to pastors, to uh, home group leaders to those involved in various uh, outreach ministries and so on. Do, do you have resources to help people to actually develop uh, a theology and uh, and maybe a, 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 a formation, a discipleship mm-hmm. around these concepts? Yeah, absolutely. But because what we're asking people to do to to ring a bell on my own is costly. This is very uh, the, the grace that we are calling well for. Done. Well done. <laughs> it is absolutely costly. Cheap grace is electrocution. Cheap grace mm-hmm. is punishment. Cheap grace is life without parole. Cheap mm-hmm. grace is our system. Mm-hmm. Costly grace requires that we engage that we move into the mess of people's lives, which is exactly what we see Jesus doing regularly. And it's exactly what we see Jesus calling us towards, to love and engage and visit the prisoner, to love and engage the other, and to ask, how is it that we can serve our neighbor? So asking people to do that is hard. I think about parenting. It's so much easier to punish my child, but to sit and to talk and to see what's underneath this, to have the bandwidth to be able to engage someone's emotions. And you talked about often a person's initial reaction to something might be sinful, and that's true. It also might just be incomplete. So we need formation. So yes, thankfully, we do have resources that we point people to, so in a few different ways. So on our website, evangelical.ejusa.org, we have a resources section that's there. 
And it's filled with some things that we've produced, some things that others have produced. It's broken into read, listen, and watch. And there are things that are there that capture a lot of what we're saying. There's one document in particular that we've written called A Theology of Our Platform that's there on the website. And that goes through those five initiatives that I spoke of that EJUSA as a whole engages. And we've gone through and we've written a couple paragraphs each of theologically and biblically, here are where those things are coming from. So those resources are there for people to engage on their own. But we also, as an organization, are a network. We also, I am also available to speak with individuals, to meet with people, to come to churches and denominations and talk about these things. We want to come along and beside churches and groups, especially for people of faith who are thinking about these things. At whatever stage they are at, if they're ready to engage in activism, great. If they are at a place of understanding, there is so much that we can do there too. There's two big ways that act as resources for people other than the ones that I've mentioned that the Evangelical Network offers. One is we do a monthly webinar series called In the Movement. And if people go and sign up for our email list, evangelical.ejusa.org, you can sign up there. You'll hear about that. We have people come on monthly, and I sit down with and engage them. And we want to engage and elevate voices in the movement, in the justice movement, voices that would both challenge and encourage Christians as they think about these matters. The other place that acts as a resource is every other month I do what's called a repealing and healing session. It's almost an onboarding orientation of sorts. It's 30 minutes on a Zoom call where anyone can come to hear a 30-minute version of what is EJUSA, who is the Evangelical Network, how can I get involved, and what does all this mean for me as a person of faith. We do those every other month. Our next one is on May 26, and anybody's able to come or bring people to those. So we've wanted to make avenues, both with resources we've put out, both with regular events and also just having myself available to engage people at wherever they are on the spectrum of wanting to think about this or to do something in light of this. The this mm -hmm. being, how can we love our neighbor specifically in light of what our criminal legal system is and is not able to do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, that's a rich rich resource and we're going to uh, get word out we'll get all the details from you and we'll put it in the text folks who are listening to the podcast now uh, you'll find links to all of this uh, in the text surrounding this podcast and we'll get that out to our family too uh, so that they can connect uh, with you and um, uh let me just ask you to repeat again, how is it, so we have folks who are listening now and saying, boy, I want to connect with these people. I want mm -hmm. to connect with Sam. Mm -hmm. uh, it, give us the path to that again. How, yeah, how does somebody two, do that? There's two ways. If you can go to our website, evangelical.ejusa.org, and all the information is there. The resources are there. People are, you can sign up for our email list that's there. You also are welcome to email me. The email list comes directly from my email address, and it's samh at ejusa.org. So anybody or any group is welcome to visit that as a resource or to reach out to me with any way that I can help. Well, wonderful. I wish we had another hour because mm -hmm. I would talk to you about the whole, the way you're treating uh, the, the racial dimension 
to all of this. And of course, ding, ding, we all know about Bonhoeffer's transformative mm -hmm. experience at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. I remind people, and I'll mention a resource on that, is Reggie Williams' Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, a great telling of that moment in Bonhoeffer's life and formation. Mm -hmm. I don't think we would know the Bonhoeffer we know today uh, without his experience in Harlem and his encounter with what was then known as the Negro Church. Mm -hmm. And, of course, most people who know Bonhoeffer know that uh, he said it was the only place you could hear the true, unadulterated gospel uh, mm. was in the black churches uh, that, that he experienced. So uh, that, that whole dimension deserves another podcast. But for now, Sam, I want to thank you for this very, very rich content. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you for... Uh, holding forth as you did. Great to know about the work of EJUSA. Great to know about the Evangelical Network. Uh, but when you get on theology, man, you're giving me goosebumps. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. For, for how well, well you. you did that. And oh, well, thank you, Rob, for creating the space. Well, uh, we look forward to a collaboration, certainly to a long friendship. And uh, wherever. Uh, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute is doing work. EJUSA is always welcome uh, at our at our table. So Sam Heath, uh, manager of the Evangelical Network of Equal Justice USA, has been my conversation partner, and what a conversation it's been. Thanks, Sam. Mm -hmm. Thank you.